Presented today with special permission from the Archives of American Art, Smithsonian Institution, Jay DeFeo, in the artist's own words. In the fall of 1946, Jay DeFeo enrolled for her freshman year at UC Berkeley. She was immediately swallowed whole with the complex arts scene San Francisco had to offer and began to feel out her place in it. She embraced abstract expressionism and the scene that the Bay was putting down. She earned her bachelor's in 1950 and her master's in 1951 before taking a fellowship to Europe. This fellowship helped illustrate a wonderful change in Jay's work, where the audience begins to feel a comprehensive style and technique forming among her paintings. Her voice starts to come through from this series onward. While on this fellowship, she studied in Paris, London, Florence, and North Africa, and allowed each place to seep into her artistic consciousness and influence her art making. Everything seems wonderful until you graduate. The post-graduation haze burned off for Jay when in 1953 she was back in Berkeley and consequently let go from her teaching gig at California College of the Arts after being convicted for stealing two cans of paint from a nearby supplier. Pissed, broke, and recently jobless, Jay did what all artists do when they're down on their luck. She got creative. She began selling jewelry she'd made herself in order to pay the rent. And I finally, you know, I think eventually it was just that commercial aspect of the thing that really kind of finished me off in the jewelry market because, it, you know, after a time I, I couldn't distinguish between exactly what I really wanted to do and, and what I absolutely had to do. And it was that conflict that you just simply get into if you were, as an artist, you know, working in a commercial way. But did you Nanny, make it? Excuse me. I was going to ask if you then made a decision on that basis when it became a. Well, I sort of quit. gradually kind of lost interest too, mm -hmm. you know. And she was she was terrific, you know. Actually, I did finally, you know, I've got a fairly good photographic uh, history of the things. I still like some of the very tiny primitive things that I did, but they did become terribly refined and elegant, you know, and and. Uh, again, they're ideas that are still important to me, you know, they're kind of cropping up in current painting, in a, in a painting medium though, not in a sculptural medium. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, she, she just hung on in there with me and finally she moved down into a new shop down on Grant Avenue and at the time it was really considered the jewelry shop in San Francisco. And so she saw me through, you know, to the point where I, I really came on with some very refined and, and elegant stuff. But then I, and then she just, she was really, I was really a, a horrible disappointment to her when I just threw in the towel, you know. I, I just, I, I, I was getting the hankering to paint again, too, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth, Paul. I've always been like that with, with materials, you know. I, I, uh, the excitement, the sensuousness of a material is what really kind of triggers me off on an idea. And whether it be metal or plaster or paint or what have you, I mean, it's that, uh, uh, you know, manipulation of, of the material itself and my response to it that makes me, I think, essentially an abstract expressionist no matter what medium I'm dealing with. 
So uh, uh, I just, uh, after a while, I just got tired of twisting wires and I felt like I wanted to start making mud pies again. <laughs> and so I started uh, painting again. But during this period, I was having small shows of my painting. I, I showed at the place in, in North Beach. This is uh, the so-called North Beach period. Wally Hedrick came into Jay's life in 1953. He was an artist himself, though his art was what would now be considered conceptual art before that term had come into the lexicon, and a student at CCA. Wally was of the beat generation, through and through. His relationships weren't formed through stuffy handshakes and business cards, but instead via readings of poetry and music gathered at a kickback at the studio that he and some buddies he knew had been occupying. Wally and his squad had formed a gallery in the loosest sense of the word, and their parties were unequivocally where cool was. Though the activities of the Sixth Gallery are poorly documented in the traditional sense, the evidence exists that they were entranced with forming a scene void of the stuffiness of academia and traditional gallery processionals. The gatherings held by Sixth Gallery are arguably the predecessors of the happenings of the later 1960s. Jay and Wally were married in 1954 and continued to make art and host gatherings. One in particular, in October of 1955, set the scene for 60s counterculture. The night's lineup of performers included a guy named Allen Ginsberg and some little ditty he wrote called Howl. An account of the night can be found in Jack Kerouac's novel The Dharma Bums, where he describes collecting change from audience members to buy cheap wine for the opening with Wally. When Sixth Gallery suddenly found itself without a venue, Wally brought his work home with him to the place he and Jay shared at 2322 and 2324 Fillmore Street. The two-story building was lauded as the epicenter of the beat movement from 1955 to 1965. The San Francisco Renaissance was on. According to the exhibition catalog for the DeRosa Art Center in Napa, who had an intimate show about the Fillmore artists in 2013, quote, the unassuming white stucco and wood two-story structure near the corner of Washington and Fillmore contained four flats. It also had a modest backyard and even a plywood roof deck. The flats were large, seven rooms with 14-foot ceilings, and the rents small, a now unbelievable $65 a month. In a 1998 interview, Wally recalled that the building sort of vibrated with all of these mixed personalities. The poets came over a lot, and there was a lot of bongo and chanting and sort of spontaneous musical drumming. There was a party about every weekend. Some of the other tenants included artist and filmmaker Paul Beatty and his wife Dee, who were there around 55 and 56, newlywed painters Joan and William H. Brown, Bruce and Jean Connor, who shared lodgings with the poet Michael McClure and his wife Joanna briefly in 1957, before moving to their own place a block away on Jackson Street. J. 
Jay and Wally, likely the building's longest tenured residents and its creative heart, who lived next door to the Browns and were introduced to the building by Beatty, taking his flat when he left. Craig Kaufman, better known as an L.A. artist, but who lived for a short time in the flat of Jim Newman, founder of the Delexi Gallery. Husband and wife, abstract expressionist painters James Kelly and Sonia Gektoff, who left Fillmore for New York around 1959. The painter and musician Dave Getz, a resident between 62 and 64. Painter Les Kerr, who, along with his wife, documentary filmmaker Mary Kerr, and their son and daughter, lived there about the same time. Oh, and Ed Moses, who, with his wife Avida, took over Newman's place around 1960. In the midst of all this creative energy and ongoing party, the Fillmore place was still Jay and Wally's home. There's no squirreling away in an introverted fashion in the studio when the party's always at your house. Still, in 1958, Jay began her work on the most prominent and famous piece, The Rose. The show, of course, uh, 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 did meet with uh, some success and, and much of it somewhat circumstantial in as much as Dorothy Miller just so happened to be out talent scouting from New York at the time, and uh, she happened to see the paintings and liked them very much, and she came to the studio and <clears throat> uh, decided that she would like to include me as well as Wally in the uh, 16 Americans show in New York at the Museum of Modern Art. And at the same time, simultaneously, uh, the one great large collector that has really acquired the majority of my early pieces is uh, Patrick, J. Patrick Lannon, uh, happened to be in town at the same time. And uh, he was not in town with Dorothy, but uh, they were there uh, at the same period. And he also saw the show. Does Lannon live in New York? Yeah, well, he has several residences. <clears throat> he has a New York residence as well as a, like a Florida residence. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course he was, he, he was, Dorothy and he knew each other, but they didn't know that they were going to be in town at the same time. Well, at any rate, he purchased a number of the paintings uh, from the Delexi show. And were those your first important sales? Yeah, I, I, well, the first and probably the last, let's face it. <laughs> but uh, he, when the, when the uh, 16 Americans show occurred, in New York, he also purchased a few from that showing. And, uh, well, anyway, uh, from, from uh, the Deluxe then, uh, the, the paintings went directly to the Museum of Modern Art and met with, uh, I guess, some approval there. I, uh, Wally and I, I don't know whether I mentioned this to you earlier, were the only people that were, we didn't really realize, I think, the the stature and the, and the and the prestige of having been included in such a show, you know, I was really completely. After six months of work on the thing, uh, I decided that the canvas uh, should be symmetrical, and it wasn't really quite the right proportion. So, with the help of Bruce Connor and Wally and a couple of other, you know, good. Uh, buddies, uh, we, we transferred the original canvas and glued it on to a larger format, and uh, the format that it's on presently. 
and so the work started expanding, you know, beyond the original sized canvas. Mm -hmm. And so that's when the, the work really started, you know, um, getting going in earnest. It would take Jay eight years to work on The Rose. As the world would later find out, she worked almost exclusively on that single piece at the time. Sure. She had a solo show in Los Angeles at Ferris Gallery before Warhol did, but it didn't matter to Jay. She never quite fit in at the stable of artists there, and she never really felt like a Southern California artist, always a visitor in both respects. At this time, Wally was supporting both of them in the studio on Fillmore Street. He'd begun teaching at SFAI shortly after graduation, in addition to running things at the studio. I gather you and Wally were evicted from the film. Well, work. yes. Well, or is that building, not the right Yeah, term? that's just mm -hmm. that's, that's as accurate as you can get. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit more accurate would be just plain kicked out. Yes. <laughs> but what happened was, you know, we sort of lived on the verge of being uh, uh, kicked out. Uh, all through these years, that, that's what made, you know, the painting of the darn thing kind of a cliffhanger all the way along the line, along with the expense and all the rest of it. But uh, the, the building was basically condemned anyway, you know, and we were just constantly living in dread of the building inspectors coming and, you know, really giving us uh, the final word on it. But what finally happened, the building changed owners, and, of course, he wanted to... Uh, um, you know, uh, clean up the building and, and rent it, you know, for higher rentals. And so in order to do so, we probably had some kind of a case legally, but we didn't know it at the time. Uh, he just doubled the rent on us and said, you get out in 30 days or less, you know, or else your rent's going to be $300, not 100 and whatever it was, 50, 25, 125, I think. Is all we paid for those two huge Now, this was in 1964. Yeah. Wally, Jay, and all the other tenants were evicted. This was a problem on two fronts. One, where would they go now? And two, how do you get an 11-foot-tall painting out of an 8-foot-tall window and 400 miles south? All things considered, I think I was pretty lucky to have you know, been able to have stayed on that long in that, in that, uh, in that studio in order to get to that stage of the game. So, it was, uh, it was practically as good as finished when, when we were evicted. And, of course, that was the marathon month of moving, right? <laughs> and uh, we had nowhere to go. And uh, so, Wally uh, came across a friend of his that had uh, his father owned a, some property out here in Moss in Marin County. Am I pushing ahead to other subjects no, no, too fast, or shall I just start the natural chronology mm -hmm. as it comes occurs to me? Anyway, so we spent a month of I'm telling you back back breaking labor moving all of our stuff out to this huge barn, and I'm telling you we had a well, Wally was, you know, doing some very big and heavy sculptures, and we had all of our supplies and all of the old paintings and our personal belongings and so forth. So we moved all of that stuff out to Ross, 
And last to go was, was the rose. And this, of course, was uh, uh, the first. I mean, uh, Walter supervised this. And he came up from Los Angeles and uh, took a look at it. And Wally and he conferred and, and called up Beacons, and they came over. And. Uh, well, was this was the intention now? Walt Walter came up with the um, authority and intention of moving the painting for exhibition yes, at Pasadena yes. Museum. Yes, the idea was that the painting had to be moved, and it couldn't be moved to Ross, and, 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 the, and the, least, the, the less number of times it should be moved, the better, mm -hmm. for both for the sake of the painting as well as the enormous expense and the moving it entailed. So, uh, it might be important here to mention that Dorothy Miller's hope at the Museum of Modern Art that the painting go directly to New York. And J. Patrick Lannan had, had always expressed a desire to purchase this one and had finally been complete. But I felt, and I'm really not sorry about it, although perhaps it's been more sensible for me to agree to send it directly to New York, but I felt uh, somewhat of an allegiance to Vito. Uh, <laughs> somewhat of an allegiance to the Ferris Gallery and as much as they had given so much support, you know. And uh, so I thought uh, I kind of owed both Walter as well as Irving's uh, a West Coast showing of the rose. And, and Walter, of course, who had always been so, uh, it was initially his, his uh, discovery, as it were. I mean, he, he kept close track of the painting from the very I know, remember both he and Irving coming well, the first week or two that I had started it, you know. And somehow or another they sensed in it, as I did, you know, something that was really going to be a big, uh, one of the important ideas in my life, and stuck with it all of those years. And I, I really felt that they deserved to, um, to have a, a showing of it here. Was there any chance or hope at the time that uh Pasadena would purchase the work? Well, yes. Uh, I think I, Walter very much wanted wanted it for the Pasadena Museum. Now now we're getting into the kind of the complications of, of what ensued. You see, I uh, I had never never even once been down to mm -hmm. Pasadena. I'd never even seen the museum, much less uh, had any understanding of what the circumstances were and what have you. Now here's one of the things that we just have to reconcile ourselves to, and the fact is that, uh, you know, Walter really was so completely uh, uh, dedicated to, to, to uh, the goal of having the Rose in Pasadena at the museum there, that no expense and no sacrifice was too great to, to achieve this. And uh, so, I, I only found out later that this whole project, you know, was costing the museum far more than it could actually afford. And I was, I found myself during this period sort of really kind of uh, caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, as it were. Because uh, it's necessary here to say, of course, that as soon as the painting was removed, uh, this triggered off the, the breakup of the marriage. And uh, Wally over to Ross where all of our belongings were, but I had nowhere to go. And so 
the idea at this time was I would go with the painting to Pasadena and uh, uh, stay down there for a brief period of time and attempt to put on the final details or kind of you know, do the final finishing if that were possible. And uh, so when Walter, I, I, I was going to say, Walter came up and conferred with Wally about the moving of the thing. This was before Wally and I knew that we were breaking up, however. <laughs> and uh, so the first people they went, they contacted was Beacons, and they came over and just to throw, give Beacons a, a plug here. They did a magnificent job. They came over a week ahead of time, and uh, they sized up the situation, which of course was absolutely unique. They'd never moved anything or seen anything like Most this. Most people before. don't have furniture like that. I know. It was even Mr. Beacons himself that came. In fact, John, didn't you say that he lived in. in he he uh, took somebody. Yeah, he lives in South. He lives in South. Mr. Beacons himself? Yes. His name is Beacons? <laughs> <laughs> With the completion of the Rose, so came the completion of their marriage. He moved out to Ross. She bounced between the Bay and L.A. Both of them continued teaching weekly at SFAI. She took a four-year break from making art. Jay was 41, a divorcee in 1969, and newly raw in a way she hadn't experienced before. She was refinding herself. In today's terms, she was totally lemonating. When she came back to making artwork, she first began investigations of her dental bridge, a fabulous series about beauty, decay, aging, and acceptance, purposefully engaged in the photographic medium. She was branching out and learning new technique from her students in the darkroom at SFAI. The 70s were good to Jay. She had a stable bow, job, and living arrangements again. She enjoyed teaching, so it comes as no surprise that in 1981 she jumped ship and became full-time faculty at Mills College in Oakland. She was now 51 and kicking life in the balls. In 1987, she was able to return to Africa and made some beautiful work reminiscent of her time just out of college. In 1988, she received a lung cancer diagnosis. In 1989, at the age of 60, she was dead. The rose now resides at the Whitney. It's still 11 feet by 8 feet by 1, about. It's not currently on display, and the Whitney hasn't provided a photo of it on their website for unknown reasons. The work is gorgeous, intricate, and doesn't depict flowers at all. Thankfully, there exists the J. DeFeo Foundation. Be sure to check out their website at jdefeo.org and inquire how and where you can see Jay's work locally.
This audio was captured June 3rd, 1975 through January 23rd, 1976, and is available via the Archives of American Art, Smithsonian Institution. Our music was brought to us by Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra. And remember, be nice to the interns and go make good art.